No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manor of thy friends or thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, do not send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. John Donne wrote those words almost 400 years ago, and they have the ring of immortality to them because they speak to a deep and significant truth that all of us carry around with us. Sometimes we might fight against it, but it's a significant truth that all of us somehow sense and know and feel. Those words were powerful enough to help inspire Ernest Hemingway to write his great novel, or at least to help title it, For Whom the Bell Tolls. It describes the deep significance that we find in the interconnections that exist between all people, all humanity, how every one of us is connected to every other one of us in significant ways that, that we don't often stop to consider and understand. Those words have been rattling around in my head for a couple weeks. We can even see their truth in the letter to the Colossians, the letter we've been learning from. If you remember back to the beginning of this series, we discovered that this letter to the Colossians was intended for more than just the Colossian believers. The Colossians were interconnected. They lived in a tri-cities region, about five miles apart. They were three different cities, Hierapolis, Laodicea and Colossae. And these three cities and the people who lived there, they were, they were dynamically intertwined and interconnected with each other through roads and through trade, but perhaps most significantly through their water system. All the towns were, were fed with water from aqueducts that carried water from the Lycus River. They were in the Lycus River Valley. But even more significant than that was what was just beneath the surface of the ground. Underneath the ground level, there were and are big, empty spaces, cavities, caverns, full of water that provide springs to that region. Hierapolis was known for hot springs, and people would travel to Hierapolis for medicinal purposes to find treatment in those hot springs. In Colossae, there were cold springs of refreshing water that helped supply fresh water to their citizens. Those empty spaces, those big cavities between, between those towns and under the earth it helped connect all those residents in ways that I wonder how they stopped to appreciate those connections. Uh, limestone rock formations under the dirt and above the dirt were created when that water bu bubbled up to the surface and released carbon dioxide and lime. Lime that calcified and turned into stone 
a region that sounds not terribly unlike the place where we live. The way that God has designed and created and put together this world that we live in, he's created interconnections between people. He's designed us to live with those connections, whether we are geographically close or distant. Every one of us is connected to one another. No man, no woman is an island entire and separated by itself. We are all connected and intertwined in dynamic and significant ways. And today, the text that we will look at describes some of those interconnections and pathways and, and how those empty spaces between us can be filled up. So if you have your Bible with you or you're watching at home and you can go pick up a Bible or open up an app, would you find your way to Colossians chapter 3, this letter that we've been studying. Now we're in the third chapter and we'll begin reading in verse 18 and finish with the first verse of chapter 4. You can also follow along on the screens as I read from the New Living Translation. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are really serving is Christ. But if you do what's wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. So masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. <laughs> those are strong, and, and maybe they sound strange or confusing. Some of those words, as you see them on the page or the screen, and as you read them out loud, this was actually a very common type of writing in the first century and the surrounding centuries. It's called a household code. It's a household code of conduct to govern the relationships in, in a large household or in a smaller one. It describes the different ways that people can interact in that household. And, and for us, some of that language, some of those words, it, it's hard for us to put together and figure out what they meant then and what they mean for us today. In some ways, this code is different from other codes that were written by Jewish rabbis or philosophers or, or Greek or Roman authorities. And in other ways, it's very similar. We can draw out significant meaning from the way this code is different from what the Greeks and Romans and Jewish philosophers and authorities were also writing about. The most significant difference between this code and other common codes of the day is that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the center 
of this code. Repeatedly, everyone is reminded that their motivation for taking specific actions is the Lord. It's because he is the one that we all belong to. He's the one that we're serving. He's the one who who really does oversee all of us. He is our father that we are all responding to. And remember, the big point, the big idea in the entire letter to the Colossians is that Jesus is greater. He's greater than anyone and anything and any rival against him. He's the one who is greater than any power that challenges him or any challenge that you and I will ever face. And in Colossians chapter 3, we are reminded of that truth. If you have a Bible open, look back at verse 11 and verse 18. In verse 11, we are told that Jesus Christ is all. He's everything, and he is in all things. He's the purpose behind everything, and wherever we go, he's going with us. He is in all things. And in verse 18, we are encouraged to let the message, the good news about Jesus, fill up our lives, to fill up all the empty spaces that exist between us as humanity and that exist inside of us as individual people. And so today, we're taking a look at three different parts of life for all of us that are in our text where we want the good news, the gospel of Jesus to fill up those empty spaces that we carry around with us and that exist between us in our relationships with one another. This is a transformative passage. So first, Christ's message, his gospel good news, connects us to each other and it fills us up through families in need of grace. Through families with a grace deficit with an empty space between us that needs to be filled up with something. If you've ever had a mortgage or student loans or made a car payment, you know there is a dramatic difference between own and owe. (laughs) Am I right? It's just one letter at the end of the word, but it makes a massive difference own and owe. The household codes in Paul's day from the Greeks, the Romans, and and even Jewish authorities, they emphasized that everybody in the household was owned by the head of the household, by the paterfamilias, by the father in that family. And everybody else in that family unit owed everything else to that head of household. Everything flowed in one direction in those first century families. But Paul's code is different because he describes mutual responsibilities that we owe to one another. Husbands are called to love their wives. Wives are called to submit or to respect their husbands. Children are reminded to obey their parents, and parents are encouraged and exhorted not to crush their children, not to break them and their spirit because they'll become discouraged, but to be gentle and to work at not frustrating 
and agitating them and making them blow up. This code is different from every other expectation that, that society was hearing at the time. Just like now, it might sound a little bit different from the things that we hear. Now, why do you think husbands were called to love and wives were called to respect and children called to obey and parents called to be gentle and not frustrate and agitate their kids? What are some reasons that you can think of for why those words are included in this New Testament code of ethics that governs our relationships and our lifestyle? I want to suggest at least three different reasons. One, it's not easy. It's not always easy. Sometimes it might be. But these different behaviors and qualities, they don't come naturally to all of us all of the time. They're challenging. For every spouse, for every parent, for every child, these qualities represent growth areas. And none of us are finished growing in these particular areas of life. I want to... I be honest with you and tell you something that if you're married, your spouse might have a hard time telling you. You are not always easy to respect. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not. <laughs> you're not quite where you think that you are. You're not as respectable as you imagine yourself to be, especially for the people who live with you. But I've also got to tell you that you're not as easy to love all the time as you might think that you are. Sometimes it might, it may be, I, I could be wrong, you know, but it might take some intentional work and effort for your spouse to love you. Parents, your default mode, more than likely, is to frustrate and agitate your kid. <laughs> and children, it's easy for parents to forget this, but, you know, to not even think about it, but no child enters this world knowing how to obey. We have to learn that. And it's not a simple process. And parents have to be patient in training their children to actually listen and obey. And we parents, we don't always... We don't always remember that. We don't always think back to what it was like when we were kids. These instructions are here for us for our own good because it doesn't come naturally. It's not always easy. But a second reason, when we live this out, it helps us to know God better. And third, it helps us learn that we need help from God, that we can't do this on our own. When a husband loves the wife that he has and doesn't try to shape her and change her into the projection of what he thinks she ought to be or of his hopes and dreams and fantasies, when he loves and accepts her throughout their life together, he has an opportunity to help her understand just a little bit of how our Father in heaven, of how God loves and accepts us right where we're at. 
how he meets us in our own weaknesses and our own shortcomings and continually, faithfully chooses to love us. When a wife finds a way to respect that that unrespectable man who lives in her house, she is helping him grow into the man that God has called him to be and wants him to be. When parents are able to understand who their child is and get to know that child, when a parent is able to be available to that child and let that child know who they really are, who they are that they might hide from other people, then we are training our children that there is a God in heaven who is able to be known and who knows them and who cares for them. When a parent is able to guide their child on the right path for their life, instead of trying to create a weight of expectations for what that parent imagines themselves to be or wants their child to be, but is able to help that child understand their strengths and weaknesses and giftings and does not crush them with a heavy load of unrealistic expectations then we are training that child that there is a father in heaven who wants the best for them. And children, I know it's not fair, and I know it's hard to believe that your parent might know something that you don't know yet. Even if you're 16, you you might not have discovered every truth of the world. I get that. But as you listen to and obey your parents... You're able to understand that there's always an authority structure in our lives. And someday, you'll be on your own, reporting to the authority who oversees all of us. These encouragements to love and respect, to obey, to be gentle, they're not easy. They don't come naturally for us, at least not all of us, and not all of the time. But when we live this way, we fill up the empty spaces in our relationships with each other, in our families, with grace. And we depend on God's grace to actually live it out. Because in our families, we don't get it right. We hurt one another. We fail more often than we want to admit. But when our family relationships are filled up with grace, we help each other know that there is a God of grace who is filling us up. And we're depending on what he gives us. It's a beautiful principle. When Christ's message connects us together and fills us, we find out that we have a gap in our families and are in desperate need of God's grace. And and the second principle for us we also discover that we are living in a culture in need of redemption. The world that we live in, the world that the Apostle Paul inhabited in the first century, both of those worlds, every world that's ever been filled up with human beings, we all create a culture in need of redemption. I'm going to tell you a secret. I didn't tell the first service this, okay? This, maybe I should not ad- admit it. But this passage, parts of it, to be honest with you, I have resented in my life. It's, it's hard, it's difficult to read that language and some of those words 
and figure out what were they hearing in the first century and what does this mean for me today and for us today? We don't, we don't even want to use words like slave and master. We try to find gentler ways of talking about our own American history because those terms are so harsh, they're so real. They describe the very real pain, the very real existence for so many people who were taken advantage of and misused. It's hard sometimes to read passages like this. In fact, I don't know that there's any place in the New Testament that's more difficult for us to figure out than texts like this one that talk about those relationships between people who thought that they and behaved like they owned other people. This passage, though, is different from every other code of conduct in the first century. Now, every code of conduct told enslaved people to be obedient to those who were enslaving them. They all said that. And then they went on and they described why they should obey. They described a difference in intrinsic value that, that there were some people who by right deserved to be the masters while there were others who were lesser people who deserved for whatever reason to be enslaved. And Christians throughout human history, throughout American history, have used texts like this to enforce that division between people and to argue that, that some people are better than others and that some people deserve to be at the bottom while others deserve to be at the top. Now, when I read this text, it's difficult for me because I wish that this part of the letter sounded a little bit more like a letter from a Birmingham jail. And I want to see a strong statement about how slavery should not exist and should never have existed. But the Apostle Paul's goal is to establish a community of people with Jesus at the center, a gospel-centered new type of creation and community. And if if he led with the Emancipation Proclamation, then this new movement that he was a part of and, and helping to keep the fires burning, he knows that it will become just another slave revolt that's crushed by others. And so instead, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul finds a fixed point on the earth to make a stand and to begin to bend the entire moral arc of the universe toward justice and equality. He tells slave owners something that no one else ever told them. And he gives a motivation to enslaved people that no one else ever gave them. He gives them a dignity they've never had, and he instructs, slave-owning masters in a way that no one else ever talked to them. Did you notice the motivation for both a slave-owning master and an enslaved person is the same? Paul is arguing in this text that both slave owner and enslaved person stand on equal footing. That both 
hold the inalienable, inherent, intrinsic human dignity of being children of God who belong to one who lives in heaven, who both have the same master who is calling all of us his own. The enslaved person is obeying not because they deserve to be enslaved or because of who their master is, but because they have a master in heaven. The slave owner is called to be fair and just. No one else tells that group of people at the top to behave in that way. And the motivation is because they have a master in heaven. Paul is beginning a movement way before Thomas Jefferson, well before Justinian in the 6th century, before Hume and Locke and Thomas Paine were ever even thought of, he is teaching people that all humanity are equal, that we share an inalienable, intrinsic human dignity, that we all stand as equals, whatever jobs we have, whatever our place in society, and we all belong to our master in heaven. But unfortunately, every one of us, we live in a culture in desperate need of redemption. And unfortunately, even though our world is different today than it was then, we still live in that messed up, broken world. Our culture needs redemption. And the church of Jesus Christ is designed to be a place where community is created, where all people are welcomed, wherever they're coming from, whatever their background, whatever they look like, whatever mistakes they might have made, and we join in one community as equals before the same master. And we are teaching. We are called to teach the entire world what it looks like to be children of God. We are interconnected with people who never step foot in our doors in this church because we are culture changers by the way that we live. We are in this culture and we're able to help redeem it when we bring God's values from heaven down to earth. Our third principle for how we are interconnected, for what happens when Christ's message, the gospel good news, is filling up all the empty spaces in our lives and relationships, we learn that our work is in need of perspective, of a new perspective, of a different point of view. For most Americans, we identify work through surveys and censuses that our work, our job, is the most important part of our life. And it's the part of our life for many of us that takes up more of our time than anything else. So I got to ask you a question. Who do you work for? Now, don't, don't get all holy, you know, and spiritual and religious. Who do you work for? If somebody asks you that and you answered the question, how would you respond? You know, some of us, we, we might say, oh, I, man, I work for my family. I, everything I do, I'm trying to care for them and provide for them and give them a, a present and a future. I, I work hard for my family. And some of us, we might say, well, I, I'm, I'm working for myself. I mean, I, I know where I'm going. I have dreams and goals and a vision. And, and I want to use all the strengths I've been given and all the opportunities that God puts in front of me. I'm working for myself. I mean, I'm going for it. Uh, some of us, you know, if we're really honest, we might say, oh, yeah, 
I, I know who I work for because they remind me of it every day. I work for that, that terrible boss. And, and they are always telling me that I work for them. And, and you might feel stuck in, in a job that you don't exactly love. A few of us, it might be dawning on us that we work to create an identity for ourselves, that what we do is way too connected with who we are. And that we really don't know who we are apart from what we do and apart from our job and apart from pursuing our career and our work. Who do you, who do you work for? Maybe, maybe you say, I am, I'm working for the day when I don't have to work. I'm working for getting out of this rut. Or you're saying, I'm retired. I don't, I don't work for anybody anymore. I want you to see Colossians Chapter 3, verse 23, that gives us a different perspective on our work life. Work willingly at whatever you do, even if you're retired. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather, rather than for any person, any people, your boss, yourself, family members, anybody else. Take a new perspective on what your work is all about and on who you are really working for. It occupies so much of our time and attention in our life. How would our work change? If you went to the office tomorrow morning or if, if you went back home to work in your home and, and shape your family with this mindset and this perspective... You're not working for any organization, even for any grand mission statement, or even for your own personal goals and pursuits, or even for your family. More than anything else, you're working for the Lord. He's your boss. Your strengths, your work, your gifts, your opportunities are a stewardship that he's offered you. And he's the chief executive no matter what your work looks like. Peter Marshall was an influential pastor and leader in the 20th century, the 1930s and 1940s. He pastored a church in Washington, D.C., and he became the chaplain for the United States Senate, but his life was cut short. He died, he died tragically young, but his memory and many of his words were preserved for us and preserved for history by his wife, his widow, Catherine, who became a prolific author. And she wrote a biography of her husband, Peter Marshall, a man called Peter, that was a bestseller. And then she wrote, she wrote quite a few other books that were also bestsellers. What we think about this interconnectedness, do you have any idea where Catherine Marshall came from, where she was born? Johnson City, Tennessee. One of the stories that she preserved that Peter Marshall told, it's one that you've heard, I'm sure you've heard it many times. You've sat through sermons like this one where someone got up and read the story or told the story, but it's a good one. So it's worth telling again. It's called The Keeper of the Spring. It's a story about a town that grew up 
in the Alps at lower elevations and an old quiet forest dweller who lived just at the higher elevations in this town. And this town began to flourish because of the beautiful, crystal clear and refreshing water that filled the lake, that that came up through a spring and was fed by pools of water from higher elevations. And the town prospered and these springs stayed clean because early on, the founders made a wise choice and they hired this, this recluse, a quiet man living in the forest up above to keep the pools of water that fed that spring clear and clean. He would, he would quietly go about his work of removing the leaf debris and twigs, branches, or logs that would fall into those pools up at the higher elevation. And this town began to grow. People wanted to live there. Uh, people there were healthy. And animals came to the lake and to the pools of water that would form from this spring. Swans glided across the lake and tourists would come and pay good money in their restaurants. But as the town grew, a new town council was elected who didn't know who really didn't know this guy that they rarely saw, almost never heard from, who kept those pools up in the mountains. And when it was time to cut the budget, they found his salary and said, oh, we can remove that. So they let the old man go. And for a time, nothing really much changed, but eventually some great logs fell into the pools and they they backed up the flow of the water until the springs down below became just a trickle. And someone noticed a little bit of a yellowish or brown tint to the water. And, and then very soon after that, there was a, a nasty, slimy coating on all of the water. People began to get sick and the swans flew away and the, the tourists didn't want to show up. So the council called an emergency meeting again where they rehired that old man, that old keeper of the springs, and he went about his work removing the logs and the debris from the trees, clearing out the pools that no one else saw or paid attention to. The spring was restored. That clear, crystal clean flow of water came back down to the town and it began to flourish once again. The tourists came back paying money and even the swans, they swam on the lake again. Now, that story, it might be made up, but the truth that it communicates is very real. As God put this world together, he put his church in place to keep the spring. He called together you and and me, all of us, to be the salt in this world that creates purity, that cleans out those pollutants to our culture and to our families and to our workplaces. He called us to be the salt that makes other people thirsty for the water that only comes from him. You and I, together, in the church, we are the keeper of those springs. When we carefully construct our families aware of our need for grace personally 
and determined to live out that grace to our spouses and to our children and to our elders. As we go about our opportunities and responsibilities in our culture, we understand that the moral arc of the universe, it's very long, but it does bend to justice. And we're called to help it bend that way. (laughs) When we go to work and we understand we have a boss that maybe other people don't really see or even know. Lord Jesus, we are not sufficient for the task that you've given us. I'm very aware of that today. I I hope that all of us are. We have a hard time filling up our families with gracefulness because our own insecurities, fears, our own ego, our own pride tries to fill us up on the inside rather than creating space for us to realize our need, our desperate need for you. Change that. (laughs) Help us to keep growing in how we love and respect, in our gentleness, in our obedience, whatever our role is in our family life. Help us understand the unique opportunity and calling you've placed on every one of us to help redeem a broken, messed up world and bend it toward your justice by bringing your heavenly values right down here on earth. Help us to look at our work a little bit differently because we know who we're working for. Not ourselves, not not even our families and and not our company or, or our supervisor. Not the person whose name's on our paycheck or who does our annual review, but we're working willingly because you've given us the opportunity. You've given us strengths and we are accountable to you. Help us to live that way. We're not sufficient to do it on our own. So give us the grace, give us the courage, and and give us the insight to be those keepers of the spring of this world that you've called us to be. We ask this in the name of Jesus, through your spirit, amen.